0: You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. This network is supported by our listeners. You can become a supporting member by going to arcpodnet.com slash members and signing up. As a supporting member, you have access to high-quality downloads of each show and a discount at our future online store and access to show hosts on a members-only Slack team. For professional members, we'll have training shows and other special content offered throughout the year. Once again, go to arcpodnet.com slash members to support the network and get some great extras and swag in the process. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. Welcome to this month's episode of Archaeology and Ale. The Archaeology and Ale podcast is a recording of a monthly series of talks presented by Archaeology in the City, part of the University of Sheffield Archaeology Department's outreach program. These talks are hosted upstairs at the Red Deer Pub in Sheffield on the last Thursday of the month during the academic year. But if you can't make it to Sheffield, don't worry because you can listen here online thanks to the Archaeology Podcast Network. To find out more about archaeology and ale, including community events, upcoming talks and demonstrations or activities at your school or community group, look us up on Facebook, Twitter or WordPress. For more information about this month's presentation and the speaker, please check the show notes on the Archaeology Podcast Network Archaeology and Ale page. talk, as part of the Archaeology and aL series is uh, by Chris Colonco hopefully I pronounced that. Spot on, yep. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, freelance archaeologist, uh, beer lover, many other yep <laughs> traits. Spot on, perfect. <laughs> There you are. <laughs> Cheers, thank you. Um, so yes, my name is Chris Colonco um, and I'm sometimes kind of referred to as a conflict archaeologist for some reason, even though I do loads of other different things in between. Um, so I specialise in Second World War military defences of the home front. So this is everything from pillboxes, anti-aircraft batteries, air raid shelters and generally things made of concrete from the 1940s. Um, so, when I'm not busy looking at bits of old concrete, I work for the Council for British Archaeology as um, the Homefront Legacy Project project archaeologist. Um, homefront Legacy is a First World War site recording project uh, run on a national scale, which aims to record the First World War homefront. But I'll not focus on that too much, as we're looking at the Second World War tonight, and I'll end up mixing all the dates up. Um, And we also found out earlier this week that we've secured funding for the end of the project as well, so I won't be losing my job tomorrow, which is really, really, really good. Um, So yeah, I'm here today to talk about uh, the Second World War site I've been investigating for the past 13 plus years, because I'm a boring sod. Um, And I just want to give you an idea about the research I've been doing and what I get up to when I'm out on the coast. Um, So, yeah, I started investigating the REIT and defences back in 2004 while studying for an archaeology A-level. Part of the A-level involved um, doing a bit of research, doing a bit of field work, and also putting together a report uh, to submit as part of the qualification as well. Um, And I live in Barnsley, which is a really boring area for for archaeology. I couldn't think of anything to look at as part of this kind of field report. Um, that was until i remembered going on holiday to Reeton sands and Filey of all places um at the time we well it was about five or six we used to go there quite a bit and i distinctly remember my dad's climbing around these big lumps of concrete saying there were second world war bunkers and all this stuff and i just didn't believe him because i didn't think any of that stuff existed in the uk and it <laughs> so as part of my A-level I thought I'd go, go out and look at these things and try and prove my dad wrong um, And it turned out he was right um, And this initial kind of field survey really sparked my interest in old lumps of concrete and guns and stuff um, So I thought I'd take it further, went on and did a degree And wrote my dissertation about reading and all the lumps of concrete around there And I kind of continue to do so today uh, so, before I talk about reading, I just want to give you a kind of like whistle-stop introduction to First World War, First World War, Second World War defences, um, um, kind of give you an idea of, um, you know, who built them and just a general history of, uh, you yeah, know, what was going on at the time. So, uh, by June 1940, the war was really not going very well for Britain and its allies. Uh, following a crushing defeat in France, um, the... Uh, British uh, well yeah British forces were and French and Belgian forces were essentially evacuated from the beaches of Dunkirk. Um, this was called Operation Dynamo and happened, I think it starts on the 27th of May, 1940. So over a two-week period, ships were bringing back soldiers from France um, after a crushing defeat. As a result of this, uh, 338 thousand soldiers were brought back, and all that stood between Britain and invasion was essentially the channel. Um, as a result of this um, evacuation, most of the British Expeditionary Forces' weapons have been left in the fields and beaches around Dunkirk as well, you know, including everything from rifles and machine guns, tanks, anti tank guns, artillery pieces, and um, vehicles. Literally, all their infrastructure was left behind. Um, yeah, and <laughs> the forces that were left have very little to stave off an invasion. Um, one thing that's worth pointing out is after the invasion no after the Dunkirk evacuation the battle in France didn't actually finish for another 3 weeks and it was during this period that the Germans lost 50% well incurred 50% of their casualties from the whole campaign and you know this is something that's often often forgot. So on the 27th of May 1940 this bloke was appointed commander in chief of the home forces. Uh, This is General Edmund Ironside, whose nickname was Tiny because he was four foot six or something Mm -hmm. like that, four foot five. He was a big bloke. Um, He was put in charge of, (laughs) I love that nickname, General Tiny Ironside, yeah, and he was massive. There are pictures of him um, where he stood up and he looms above people, he's a big bloke. Um, But yeah, he was given the unenviable task of planning Britain's defence as well as kind of reorganising the demoralised soldiers that had been brought back from France. Um, and it was really was an unenviable job that he was given. Um, Ironside himself had served during the First World War as a battalion commander so he ha- did have military experience and had fought in the First World War. So Ironside came up uh, with this strategy pretty much. Um, it was a sta- strategy based on static lines so these are simply lines of fortification stretching throughout the country. Um, which were established ideally to slow down the enemy enough for a counterattack to be launched. Um, once the enemy, you know, once it was known where the enemy was um, attacking, then, yeah, a mobile counterattack would be launched and the fleet from Scapa Flow would sail down and attack the invasion barges. Um, yeah, and ideally, hopefully, these defenses would keep the enemy at bay for long, you know, as long as possible. So you can see that there are three stop lines there, I'll go through them in a second. Um, These were the Coastal Crust, which is imaginatively named because it followed the coast. Uh, I'll show this uh, in a bit. We have the secondary stop lines and finally we have the GHQ or the General Headquarters stop line as well. So I'll take you through these defences now. So the first was the Coastal Crust, which funnily enough is on the coast. Um, This was the first line in Ironside's defences. It consisted of pillboxes, minefields, anti-tank defences, barbed wire, coastal batteries, beach obstacles and a whole load of other stuff, which I can't mention because it's too numerous. So the line of defences, you can see, stretched from Scotland in the north all the way down the east coast um, and down to the Thames and then on to Cornwall. You'll also notice the stretches of the Welsh and Lancashire coasts are also uh, fortified as well. Um, The idea behind this was that, just just in case, uh, the Germans tried launching an attack from the Republic of Ireland, which was neutral at the time. Uh, There was always this fear that the the Germans would invade there first and then attack from the open flank. Um, It's worth noting that this uh, stop line was um, essentially there to hold an invasion force on the beach as long as possible. It wasn't there to kind of throw the invasion back, into the sea. It was just there to hold them for as long as physically possible to stop them advancing inland and giving a counter-attack force enough time to muster and giving the home fleet enough time to sail down from Scapa Flow up in the Orkneys. Um, right, next we have the secondary stop lines. So uh, these are additional stop lines constructed further inland. The idea behind these was to hinder the movement as uh, uh, the invasion force moved inland. Um, there is quite a Dead spots in East Anglia there where I 've not quite got round to mapping all the defences there but there were about six or seven just in Norfolk and Suffolk alone um, again uh, these focus kind of around uh, defended localities which were places that were deemed vulnerable um, and included defended towns um, airfields communications hubs junctions and bridges uh, and they were generally built um, on a you know kind of as and where basis so places that were deemed vulnerable would be kind of given their own defensive stop line. Again the purpose of these was to slow down the enemy as much as possible as they tried to move inland. Finally we have uh, the GHQ line which was the general headquarters line Uh, this ran obviously as you can see all the way from Edinburgh in the north or would have run from Edinburgh in the north down to the Humber on from the Humber to Cambridge it actually passes through Ely onto the Thames, and then off to the Bristol Channel and elsewhere. Um, and part of the GHQ defences were three separate stop lines around London itself as well. Um, so this would have been the final line of defence. So had the Germans broken through the coastal crust and secondary defences, um, this would be the, essentially the last line of defence to you know, hopefully stop the German invasion force. Again, the stop line consisted of pillboxes, anti-tank ditches and road and rail blocks. It's um, so worth noting that this is the projected line of the GHQ line. It actually didn't reach as far as um, north of Cambridge, so it kind of stopped where it, just where East Anglia is there. But I thought it would be best to show the thing in its entirety rather than just showing you a part of it. So, um, at the end of, well, in, on the 19th of July, 1940, uh, General Brooke was appointed the Commander-in-Chief of the Home Forces. Um, Ironside's strategy was not very popular, um, and he was promoted to field marshal and given an e- early retirement, uh, which was very convenient. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was a lot of, uh, yeah, a lot of people in the Army weren't happy with Ironside's strategy, but, you know, it, given the... Res- he had. Very little resources, he had to do something, and the strategy was perfectly sound for the time. You know, there was nothing wrong with it. He couldn't just kind of sit there and twiddle his thumbs and wait for the Germans to turn off. Um, Brooke, when he was appointed, implemented a completely new strategy altogether. He retained the coastal crust, um, essentially strengthening it, but also immediately hold to the construction of the stop lines inland, um, Although construction of these stop lines did continue for another couple of months following his directive to stop. Um, yeah, Brooke uh, implemented a new strategy which focused around things called anti tank islands, defended localities, and nodal points. Uh, so these were essentially areas of defence which were given an all round defence uh, with the hope that they would kind of stave off um, a German inv- advance. Um, these again focused on large towns and cities, road and rail networks, river crossings, and important communications hubs. So essentially, what they did was deny the Germans the use of the roads as they tried to move inland. So uh, blitzkrieg warfare uh, relies on roads, the road and rail network, for a speedy advance inland. And by denying the Germans this, um, it would substantially slow them down. Um, As they encounter, I'm just going to use the term "anti-tank islands" to kind of describe all of the various types of defence. Um, but as the uh, anti-tank I- islands were given all round defence, the Germans were given pretty much two options when they tried to, to attack them. They were either attack them head on, which would you know, cause casualties and tie up loads of troops, or they could go around them um, and prolong the advance. But as they were bypassing the road networks, which were kind of controlled by the anti-tank islands. They would lose speed and also the anti-tank islands would continue to fight on in the rear, again, tying up more troops and eventually slowing down the advance in land. So it was a more kind of modern defence. It's termed a hedgehog defence nowadays. Um, uh, Brooke himself and actually served um, in France during the Blitzkrieg as well, so he had a more of a first-hand account of how things actually worked, you know, in the offensive and had a good idea of German... Um, tactical doctrine as well and in the fort. Um, also worth pointing out that by the time uh, Brooke was appointed in July, um, there were a lot more tanks and weapons available to him. So he had a lot more to play with in terms of um, creating a uh, armoured counterattack force as well. Um, yeah, there'd been a massive production drive and he had a lot more to play with as a result. So that's kind of a whistle stop <laughs> introduction to Second World War defences and some of the key characters. Uh, which will now bring me on to lovely sunny Filey. So, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, Filey Bay is located on the east coast of Britain. Um, here we go. Right there, uh, within, um, well, just to the south-east of Scarborough and northwest of Bridlington. The area itself consists of, in fact, let's switch to this map. So you can clearly see here the area itself consists of a um, long flat expanse of beach situated within pretty much what would be a natural harbour. Uh, the beach itself is backed by, in fact let's go to this one, here we go. Um, so the beach itself, you can see the beach as the kind of beige streak down the centre of the map is backed by substantial boulder clay cliffs. Uh, behind this as well, you've got a relatively flat area. Um, and further inland from this, you've got an even flatter area of the Yorkshire Wolds, which would have been pretty much perfect tank country as well. So if the germs had broken through, you know, they'd be straight onto this relatively flat terrain, which would be very useful. Um, so the main focus of my work has been on and Sands, which is the beige-colored strip. Uh, the village of Reeton, which is in your bottom left, and the village of Speeton there. Uh, The village of Speeton sits on this really high ridge of ground which runs from east to west, Um, and I'll be going into the significance of that shortly. So uh, this section of coast was deemed vulnerable by the military uh, and included within Ironside's scheme of coastal cross-defences because it was on the coast. So many, many years ago, um, I started my... Research into into the area to give me a kind of background and idea of what survived in the area. So um, where to start? Well, there are a number of sources available. Um, you know, over the years, this research has grown and taken in a wide range of sources. Um, and essentially, the research has acted as kind of like the desk-based assessment for my field work, which has gone on subsequently. Um, so this has allowed me to build up a picture of the second known Second World War defence in the area. Um, and the idea of this was to highlight areas of interest which I could investigate further on the ground. So instead of just turning up and wondering the landscape <laughs> randomly and uh, without focus, um, I was able to pick out areas where you know I could focus my attention and start doing some further investigation. Um, yeah, the idea of the research as well was to pick out remaining features but also get an indication of their condition as well. So I knew what state things were in when i go and have a look around so the first source of information i consulted were the um, local hr records that's historic environment records uh, via heritage gateway and i've also taken a look at the defense of britain project data here which is available through the archaeological data service website Um, and as of 2006 i started my research in 2004 um, the research well the uh, data for the defense of Brim project was point to a Google Earth file so you could actually view it a lot easier than just looking through a kind of text database which doesn't kind of give you the same effect really. Um, so just to be about the defense of Brim project. Uh, the Defense of Brim project was a major national recording project coordinated by the Council for British Archaeology yay um, uh, which took place from 1995 to 2001. Uh, the project set out to record uh, 20th century military defences by using a large volunteer force um, and the information gathered by by the project is just amazing you know it covers the entire country and picks out loads and loads of you know interesting sites and 20th century stuff um, in regards to Firely Bay um, the Defence of Britain record picked out loads and loads of pillboxes and things like that, but it also picked out um, an emergency coastal battery um, which was located at Primrose Valley uh, kind of just in the centre of the bay. I don't know if you built able to see it on there but it was kind of central. Um, but you've got the two records at the top, it was just to the south of there. You know, just, yeah. I'll try not to uh, yeah, point things out. Anyway. Um, so these emergency coastal batteries were built as a direct response to the threat of invasion. So these were um, basic, quickly thrown up uh, coastal batteries which um, would engage enemy shipping. There was trying yeah, Enemy shipping and invasion barges that were coming in. Um, and these were generally built within a two-month period. Um, but there is one example in Suffolk, and I never remember the name of the battery, but it went from being on paper to being fully operational within the space of two weeks. So, you know, they were really chucking these things up. Mm. That's one of the significant sites um, within the Filey Bay area. But you'll see Reetons at the south. You can see you've got this vast concentration of records down there, uh, which is what I'll be looking at in a second. Um, So my research has also included looking at original 1940s aerial photographs. These are just truly brilliant. Um, They're available through Historic England, which was then English Heritage, um, and give you an idea of the landscape at the time. I just need to point out that this isn't Reetons, this is Dover, um, because I don't have permission to... Um, replicate the aerial photographs that I have, and I didn't want to get sued. Um, but you can, this gives you an idea of, um, you know, an example of the Second World War landscape. Um, you can clearly see a number of defences in the area. So in the centre left, you've got this wiggly trench. Um, just on the right-hand image, um, kind of in this area here, you've got a Nissen hut camp. Just to the southwest of that, you've got. I don't know what it is. It might be a battery or some form of military installation, but it's surrounded by this massive barbed wire and there's a lot of activity going on in there. Um, but that's exactly why I use the aerial photographs. They allow you to pick up on features that may have been missed during the Defence of Britain survey, but also things that tend to not survive. So your trenches were generally backfilled, the barbed wire scrapped, you know, and, uh, or reused elsewhere. And, you know, things kind of went back to normal after the war. Um yeah I've also been able to compare the of photographs with all maps as well so to build up a picture of how the area has changed over time as well. And I've also spent a lot of time reading original 1940s military manuals because I'm really really boring I've got nothing better to do. Um but this has helped me kind of build up a picture of how the army operated at the time, how they used the weaponry and how they would sight and use trench systems. It's proven really really useful to do that and very expensive. <laughs> um so having consulted the available records, I've been able to kind of highlight the areas of interest for the survey and more importantly identify areas of private property and land so that I can contact the landowners in advance so I'm not trespassing, getting shot or arrested. Which is um, a very important thing not to get. Um, but yeah, if you're doing any field work, always gain landowner consent before doing so. Uh, <laughs> uh, right, so on to the fieldwork. Um, so I followed up the research with a detailed field survey of the Reet and Sands area, um, using the areas of interest that I'd identified. Um, I started field recording way back in 2004 when I was about 17, um, and have continued to do this up until last year. So it's fairly a, long, a fairly long time. Um, the aim of this field work has been to kind of confirm the surviving features highlighted by the Defence of Britain project, as well as identify unrecorded features on the ground too. Um, from there, then I record the locations, determine their condition, and also ascertain how and why the defences were placed within the military landscape for defence. Um, I also intended as well to use the information to check the reliability of the Defence of Britain project data, just so that I could see how reliable it was for further work within the area. Um, so the fieldwork aspect of the project has also allowed me to kind of monitor the condition of the defence over a number of years. So I've been able to see how they bounce off cliffs and get eroded by the sea, which is always very useful for conservation. Um, yeah, and it, you know, it helps you see how coastal erosion affects different areas more than it does, you know, elsewhere throughout the country, which is, I don't know, someone might find it useful. Um, uh, the field survey itself has consisted of uh, creating a record for every single, I keep on kicking that, every single individual feature. Um, so using a similar de- methodology used by the Defence of Britain project and also the current Home from Legacy project. There's another plug. Um... So this essentially involves gaining an accurate grid reference for each feature or structure, writing a written description describing what you see and what remains, um, assessing the condition using a set of kind of uh, standardised criteria, as well as conducting a detailed photographic survey of what remains too. Also where possible, I've taken measurements of surviving features, which has mainly been pillboxes, And then this has been used to create plans of the structures to scale and do some other stuff, which I'll be showing shortly. So the field survey itself has actually identified quite a number of distinctive defence types within the area, including some that you might not expect to survive. So the first of these is the pillbox. Um, The field survey itself has highlighted a number of different types of pillbox. Um, And a pillbox is essentially a small structure, structure, often constructed from concrete or more often than not. Um, that would be used by the infantry for protection. Um, You can see that the walls generally have these big holes in them, which are called loopholes, which allow the infantry inside to fire out, so they're not just kind of hiding away in some big lump of concrete. They're able to actually fight back too. Um, So there were actually many different pillbox designs. Um, There were eight or so official designs kind of handed out by the military, but you tend to uh, find variations on these designs. In fact, there's more variations than there were standardised designs. so the first pillbox the Tentor to encounter in the Filey Bay area is the eared pillbox. Um, this is a variant pillbox. Um, as I've explained, a variant is a pillbox which is a variation on a standardised design. Um, and it gets its name from the two forward-facing entrances that project from the side. Um, let's just... Here we go. So this is a plan of the pillbox and a 3D reconstruction that I've made. Um, you can see these entrances project forward and are meant to look like a pair of ears, and I still fail to see it <laughs> after all these years. Um, Uh, The pillbox itself, because the entrances face forward towards the (laughs) direction of enemy advance, this would be a complete death trap. So if you're inside there getting shot at, you're not able to get out of the thing. Um, There's been some (laughs) debate whether this has been done on purpose uh, because the pillbox itself would have housed two Vickers machine guns. In fact, ah, there we go. Mm -hmm. It would have had two of those in it. Um, And following Dunkirk, we'd left most of those back in France. So we didn't want the crews... Gay shot at him running off straight away. Um, I don't know if that's true or whether it was just a generally bad design. Um, let's just go back to this one. So you can, in fact, no, even better this one. Um, so you can see that you've got these wide loopholes, which would allow the um, Vickers machine gun to be traversed over a fairly wide arc. We've um, also got these projections below the loopholes. It has been suggested that these would be used, so I'm gonna quickly swap back to this one, to house, can you see the uh, gun itself is mounted on this tripod? the two legs at the front project forward. So if you try mounting that in a pillbox, you need to accommodate for the two forward-facing legs. If you don't, then someone's going to end up shooting the gun off and it's going to fire into the wall and spray you with bullets and kill you. Um, It's also been suggested as well, that this kind of like uh, projection was used to house the... There's a big tin right in the foreground there. Uh, That's the condensing tin. So the barrel uh, was shrouded in water. You see the kind of fluted barrel jackets. And when you fire the gun, that heats up and starts to boil. Eventually, the water condenses into that tin and you pour it back into the gun to keep it cool. So those projections were meant to house that as well, but I really do want to get my hands on a deactivated Vickers and give that a try. And I know someone with one, but they live down south and it's a bit far for them to travel. But that is on my list of things to do. Um, What else we got? Uh, So next, the second more common type of pillbox you find is the lozenge pillbox, which... Funny, it's meant to look like a lozenge from the top, and I still don't see it. Um, this would have uh, occupied, well, been occupied by standard, standard infantry um, and would have allowed them to fire both rifles and Bren-like machine guns from inside the pillbox. Here we go. So on the left, we've got the Bren LMG, which is the bren light machine gun, which was the standard infantry machine gun at the time, which was issued um, at a rate of one per eight men. Eight men being an infantry section. It could fire out, well, it could fire, spit out 303 rounds at a rate of 500 to 550 per minute Um, and had an effective range of about 600 yards, which is 548 meters. At that range, you could essentially hit what you were aiming at and then, you know, make sure you killed it as well. Uh, On the right, we have two infantrymen. Uh, The guy on the left, uh, crouching next to the fence Has the SMLE rifle So that's the short magazine The Enfield rifle And he's got the bayonet attached uh, That was the standard infantry rifle At the time um, It was issued in 1909 And continued to see service You know during Throughout the second world war Even though they tried replacing it um, With the number four rifle um, The effective range of the Number four No SMLE rifle um, Depend on the person operated it But trained someone who was trained to use the rifle properly could fire out to about 300 yards and expect to fight, hit the target. Um, over that range, it wasn't quite as accurate but still be used to put down suppressing and area fire. So the yeah the lozenge pillbox itself would have allowed the employment of both those two weapon systems, as they call them nowadays. I just call them guns. Um, if you look at the plan on the left, the shorter walls of the pillbox, oh, it does look a bit like a lozenge, um, <laughs> would have been used to house the... Bren uh, Bren light machine gun and the uh, walls to the left and right would have been used to fire the rifles out so these are there are two different styles of loophole you can you know by looking at them I've been able to work out what the weapons were um, by taking measurements of the weapons that I've collected which are all deactivated and legal to own. Um, I need to point that out because I don't want to get raided by the police. The 3 d reconstruction on the right um, shows the pillbox without its roof and gives you a general kind of indication of what the thing looked like um, when it was in use. Um, it's got this you know these shelves in place, but in the center it's got what's termed an anti ricochet wall. The idea of this is that if anything came through the loopholes, you know if you got shot at and a bullet came through it't would bounce around inside and shred everyone it would kind of get caught by this wall and stop everyone getting killed um, yeah. Um, as the standard infantry section at the time was between, well, it was eight men in 1940, which was increased to 10 men in 1941-42. Um, the, idea, the idea initially was that this pillbox would be manned by eight people, but it would be very cosy in there. They're not very big. Um, but again, that's something I want to try out. I want to try and get eight people into one of those and have them run around and do stuff um, just for a bit of experimental archaeology. Uh, so the final pillbox that was identified in the area was uh, this Rook pillbox. I really don't know why it's called that. I think it was probably by the person who designed it. But this was a kind of prefabricated fil- uh, pillbox which incorporated... You can't see them really um, in the picture, but it incorporated these um, kind of art-shaped Stanton shelter sections, which were which commonly used in air raid shelters. Um, these things are extremely rare. Um, I think the Defence of Britain project only found four of them in total and only one of them remains I think nowadays um, so it's not very clear what this was meant to be used for, uh, the Defence of Britain Project states it's for a, would have been used for a machine gun but I'm not convinced by that, it had been really really quite difficult to set up a machine gun in that and use that loophole effectively um, I think it's more likely to have been used for a six pounder anti-tank gun um, there's a distinct lack of anti-tank gun emplacements on this stretch of coast with only one known example which is a six pounder anti-tank gun emplacement but that faces north towards Filey. This one does face south and would have covered um, the rest of the beach um, and that's how it looks nowadays. Yeah so it's fallen off the cliff and there's even less of it left of it now. Um, so that's you know, example of why it's really important to get these things recorded. So um, the field works also identified a large number of anti-tank obstacles. Um, These are known as anti-tank cubes, or this specific type is. Um, And these were generally set along the kind of base of the cliff at Reet and stop uh, tanks moving off the beach. But they were also set at right angles to the beach as well. We'll see this later. Um, But the idea of this was to stop the tanks moving down the beach laterally towards the beach exits and kind of leaving them high and dry on the beach. Um, An anti-tank cube is essentially just a large block of reinforced concrete. Um, You could, you know, churn these things out in the thousands really quickly. So these were cast in situ, um, along the length of the beach. Um, and many of them can still be found today, even though you'd you know, be hard pressed to identify them if you don't know what you're looking for. Uh, what's interesting about these examples is their size. Um, the standard anti-tank cube was meant to be around one metre, seven centimetres to one and a half metres square, and about 1.5 metres high. Um, but some of the examples I've are, are up to two metres high, which you can see there that I'm modelling one um for scale um and these are huge you don't find this anywhere else in the country um everywhere else tended to kind of stick to the official guidelines well in yorkshire we wanted to do bigger and better uh you find these bloody huge (laughs) great big anti-tank cubes which are really quite elaborate in some cases as well and yeah yorkshire seems to be the only only place where you find these massive anti-tank cubes so maybe it was an overabundance of concrete or something and they just wanted to use it up i really don't know um but again I would love to find some examples of those elsewhere just in case. Um, so there are also quite a few surprises uh, that kind of appeared during the um, during the fieldwork. So I had identified a number of uh, trenches on the 940s aerial photographs where you'd expect to see them. Um, you know trenches were employed ex- extensively more so than pillboxes. Um, yeah, they were used throughout the defensive landscape. Um, and they had many advantages over the pillbox as well. So, firstly, they didn't restrict your overall view of the outside world, unless you were kind of cowering in the bottom of one. Um, yeah, once you're inside a pillbox, your vision is extremely restricted. You know, you're restricted to looking out the loopholes and you don't have a sense of what's going on around you, especially in battle. So you really were vulnerable when you were inside one. You know, if, if you got caught inside a pillbox, you decide to get shot at, you're, you're pretty much dead. Um, also, trenches trench is actually quite surprisingly hard to destroy with artillery and aerial bombs. So There was a lot of experiments done early on in the war to test the effectiveness of um, trench positions and see how they survived against artillery, and it was found that they survived really quite well. Um, generally, your, This is a training trench, I need to point that out. Generally, uh, Second World War trenches are no, longer, no wider than 60 centimetres, so very, very narrow. So, you, you know, you'd have a lucky shot getting a bomb in there or, you know, dropping a piece of artillery in it. Um, So, yeah, pillboxes in comparison were actually quite prominent structures and unless adequately camouflaged were, you know, pretty much a trap. This was actually kind of recognised quite early on on by the army and fairly fairly early on in the war it was recommended that um, only the Bren gun teams would man the pillboxes. So, in fact, we've got an army section there, you can see five riflemen at the top of the picture and this, (laughs) just realised, the section commander's actually hugging the Bren gun team, which is really weird. It looks like it is. Um, But the Brengun team was a two-man team. You've got your section commander next to them who would have commanded the section. He was generally a corporal or something like that. Uh, But just the two men of the Brengun team would man the pillbox, while the rest of the section would be outside manning the trenches, keeping a, you know, 360-degree arc of fire going and making sure that the pillbox wasn't suppressed with incoming fire by returning fire on any enemy that uh, fired at them. Pillbox construction was eventually halted in late 1941 in favour of small slit trenches as well, and uh, weapon slits were dug as a result, and these were you know capable of accommodating between two and ten men. Uh, but you do get examples which were constructed for the platoon level, which is uh, about 30-man crew. So usually the trenches were backfilled after the war. Um, however, some trenches do survive in Reton, uh, in, particular, in particular this example. So I spot, spotted this on the 1940s aerial photographs. And given the... There we go, there it is. The aerial photographs were taken at fairly close intervals, so you can actually see this trench being dug, which is really, really cool, where well, you can see the pillboxes going in as well. And I think the way that uh, the, well, the defences were constructed is that the pillboxes went in first, and then an army unit was assigned to the area, and they went in and... Trenches where needs be, you know, which kind of makes sense. Um, Yeah, so this um, example you can see on the left, the big square bit is a fire bay, so that's where you'd stand and fire your weapons onto the beach or the surrounding area. And then this is connected by this very kind of narrow, what's called a a crawl trench, so it wouldn't be as deep as a fire bay, um, but would allow you to kind of exit the position. Uh, Originally, the trench carried on around the back of this pillbox, and there was a similar position on the other side with the fire bay. It's kind of like a I call it a bastion trench, it's kind of like a a bit like an old fort or something like that, very similar in plan. Um, Yeah, so I was quite surprised to find that, and the front edge of it is actually still revetted with uh, metal revetment stakes, which would have been used to keep the sides of the trench up, and yeah, that came as a really big surprise. Often as well, uh, existing landscape features such as irrigation ditches and field boundaries were also adapted to act as ready-made trenches. Um, You know, why dig a trench when you've already got one there? It makes no no sense. And we've got one prominent example at Reeton here. So you can see just in between the trees, this kind of like defile. That's a, another Second World War trench, and that's quite a substantial one, or it was until it was built on a couple of years ago. Again, this was one that showed up on the aerial photographs and also showed up on the 1930s maps as well. And yeah, the nine aerial photographs show them, where well, you can see the spoil around it, where they've actually kind of modified it for use as a trench. Uh, oh, here's a good one. Uh, so the landscape of Reton and Filey Bay was festooned with barbed wire. Uh, bar- barbed wire had gained its uh, reputation during the First World War and continued to be used extensively during the Second World War. Um, after the Dunkirk evacu- evacuation, barbed wire was pretty much the only thing uh, that the British Army had in abundance and they put it to very good use. So the barbed wire at Reton and probably elsewhere was used to restrict movement across vulnerable stretches of land as well as uh, kind of funnel the incoming enemy into minefields and pre-prepared kill zones. Um, Barbed wire, along with other military obstacles, generally has to be covered with effective fire. Um, So if you don't have something that can shoot at the barbed wire obstacle, all the Germans need to do is come along, snip it and carry on, because they're not going to get shot at. There's nothing there to, you know, hold them up. And this is, you know, pretty much the same strategy that was used in the First World War. Anyone advancing, you get held up by barbed wire and then they get machine guns and get shot up with artillery. Now I really did not expect to find any remains of um, Second World War barbed wire, but this curly bit of metal Mm. in the middle of the photograph is a barbed wire screw picket. Uh, These were developed in the First World War um, and what they've got is like a corkscrew on the end. What you do is put your entrenching tool through one of the loops and screw it into the ground. Uh, the advantages of this during the First World War were that you, you weren't going out in the middle of the night making big loud hammering noises in the middle of no man's land trying to put barbed wire up so generally using these they were fairly silent so you didn't tend to get shot at um, yeah and this one still survives in situ at the rear of one, the pillboxes on a very steep incline it's literally an incline like that you know like uh, so some poor so and so had to go in there and replace it originally and then when it came to taking the barbed wire out they just left it Um, And I only spotted that last year, and that's after 10 years of looking at the place. You know, things are still kind of popping up here and there. Um, Next, also, the Fields uh, Survey also identifies some really, really amazing stuff, uh, such as this graffiti. Um, There's a single pillbox at Reetham which is completely covered in the stuff. There's at least the names of 10 individuals on top of this pillbox, along with a series of dates. Um, You can quite clearly see that it was written into the drying or wet, slightly wet concrete. You know, someone's not come along and try playing an elaborate prank on me by chiselling this stuff into the top of the pillbox. Yeah, um, I believe that this, these are the names of the contractors who built the pillboxes. So generally, it wasn't the army who built these. It was local contractors that were contracted in to do, to do the heavy work. Um, this pillbox itself sits at the kind of like southernmost extent and is the last pillbox in the line of pillboxes at Filey. Um, and it also sits um, along a footpath with two shear drops each side of the footpath is no wider than that. Um, and the of land it sits on is just as big as the pillbox, so it would have been a really big job to build this thing. I think at the end of the day, you just thought Sod it will put us names on it, so <laughs> we've gone through too much trouble for this. Um, interestingly as well, uh, the same names appear on at least one other pillbox further to the north as well. So there is um, other examples of the same people building pillboxes elsewhere on the coast as well. We've also got, this was a big surprise I spotted a number of years ago as well, the same pillbox highlights uh the kind of humor of the soldiers as well uh so this is a um painted graffiti on the inside of the pillbox which i'm sure is second world war it might be written in um, gas detection paint so generally you'd have um this paint which is like paint on a wall and it would indicate that if gas had been dropped but this is on the inside of the pillbox and it reads wormwood scrubs it's named after the famous prison um, and it's just in the entrance as you go into the pillbox. You can see it right there. Um, I've compared it with known examples of Second World War painted graffiti further down the coast, and it, you know, the way it's painted and the style of it does match other, you know, other known examples. And you tend to find that contemporary graffiti isn't quite as tame as that as well. Um, there's a lot of swearing involved. Um, so that kind of gives you a general, you know outline of some of the things that the field survey that I've done has kind of identified. But I want to go one step further and kind of explain why, you know, what, where and why, why these things were built where they are, what they did, you know, and just try and explain what was going on in the area. So the first thing I did was um, start plotting the locations of the fences, initially using a map, and then I've gone on to using geographical information software. Um, So this uh, helps you see the defences from above and start drawing conclusions about how they were placed within the landscape you know, and gain a sense of their distribution throughout a given area. Um, So before I look at the distribution of the defences, I'd like to just go through some of the reasons of defending this kind of stretch of coast. Uh, So the Yorkshire coast itself would have been a potential target for an invasion force. Uh, You can see it sits on the east coast. Um, Essentially any invasion force landing here and wanting to move inland would essentially be able to quickly take over the tactically important coal, land, coal fields and industrial areas in the centre of the country. And then if they kept on, kept on pushing, they'd split the country in two. So it would have been a hard place to land, given how far the Germans were away from you know, the Netherlands and stuff, but it would have been a possibility and one of the reasons why the stretch of coast was defended. And it's one of the reasons why Filey Bay was heavily defended too. So you just can't start by looking at the landscape uh, around Reton as well. So you can see this, is, this was my initial kind of plotting of the defense in the area, which I did in Google Earth many, many years ago. But you can see the kind of high concentration of um, concrete defenses in the area. So what I want to do now is kind of try and explain this and, you know, work out why there was such a high concentration of defenses in the area. Well firstly, Rhetan sits on the southern extent of Filey Bay so this would have been a very vulnerable flank for anyone trying to land in Filey Bay itself, as well as the northern flank as well, so you need to protect the flanks to ensure that you can move inland. But yeah, the section of the bay was actually a prime objective for any invading force for the following reasons. Firstly, um, just in the centre of the image you can see where it says Gill Cliff, mm. just to the left of that there's kind of like a path that comes down. Um, in the pre-war period, uh, that was heavily strengthened um, to allow, allow vehicle access to the beach. Um, the construction industry had used Reton to quarry pebbles and stones and things to be used in ag- as aggregates. Um, and as a result, lorries needed access to the beach to get onto the beach, you know, kind of harvest the pebbles and then get back up. So they're stuck in this really substantial vehicle ramp for heavy vehicles, which would have been perfect for anyone trying to bring tanks and lorries off the beach. Uh, so that would have been a prime uh, prime target and it's worth noting as well that all the other beach exits apart from Filey were not capable of allowing vehicles to exit the beach itself. Uh, next we have the ridge of high ground around Speeton which is known as Speeton Hills. Um, this offers a prime vantage point from where the whole of Filey Bay and much further inland as well can be seen. So from here it would be the perfect location to kind of call in artillery and observe the f- uh, surrounding area for any kind of defending force movement or anything like that. Also, we have um, a very extensive and substantial road network as well. So, Reeton and Speeton are just kind of in your bottom right-hand corner. Um, the road that comes to the south of Speeton and straight through Reeton is actually the main coast road, which runs from Hull and Bridlington to the south, which takes you all the way through the, to the north to Scarborough and further on. So, again, this would have been a prime objective for anyone trying to invade the area. So, one of the key objectives for you know, if the Germans landed, it would be for them to secure this road network along with the high ground and also kind of take control of the rail network as well because um, vehicles such as tanks and lorries can still use the rail network as well as they can use the road. Um, also by kind of cutting off um, this um, substantial road, it'd force any defending forces to travel further inland to attack the beachhead as well, so giving the Germans more time to kind of organise the defence. Again, this would have been, you know, Another kind of key defence and key strat- key aim of an invading invo- force. So, taking all that into consideration, we'll start looking at the actual distribution of the pillboxes around Rieten, Sands, and Speeton. So, from this, you can see that there's pretty much three distinct lines of defence. You've got the pillboxes on the beachfront itself, set just above the high water mark. You've got this secondary row of pillboxes there, which concentrate around the cliff tops and the um, exit road from the beach. Again, uh, Reton was the only place that had, you know, somewhere where you could get straight onto the road and straight to the road network, which would have been key to Blitzkrieg war- Warfare. And then finally, we've got a concentration of pillbox, well, two po- pillboxes around speech in itself. So the first thing that stands out, I don't know if it's too clear, but um, you can see that the pillboxes are indicated by a star on the beach. These are the eared pillboxes. So you can see that they pretty much exclusively sit on the beachfront. And there's only a single example up at Speeton, um, an veneered pillbox for the Vickers machine gun. Uh, I've been told that this is the only example of an veneered pillbox that sits in land. So I don't know that, well, I've got a couple of reasons for that, but I don't know if it is the only one that sits in land. Uh, but by placing it on the high ground there, it would have allowed the machine gun teams to essentially kind of machine gun anyone that's coming off the beach, various beach exits from the beach, and also essentially cover the road as well with flanking fire. Uh, you can see that the circles on the map, they indicate uh, the lozenge pillboxes. Again, there's a distinct um, pattern to their deployment. So you can see that they've been focused around the beach exit to the right, where the little kind of stream is, along the cliff tops, and further inland, as well as covering the um, beach exit road. And then there's a single one at Speeton, which sits on the highest point of land in Speeton as well. From there, it would have allowed them to not only control the kind of high ground and the areas to the north, but also cover the approaches to the village to the south, along with the road, the major coast road as well. So it's a really good defensive position. So I'm going to kind of pick out three areas just to kind of show you in a bit more detail how what the defences look like. So the first one will be the coastal kind of beach access, which is right where it says Reaton Sands, the area where it says Low Fields and the village of Speeton itself. So this is um, kind of a GIS interpretation of the defence that I've done. Uh, I've created this from the aerial photographs at the time and also tied in my field survey data with that as well. So you can see there's a heavy concentration of um, defences around the beach access road. Um, It doesn't show up on the map, which is really helpful, but you can kind of see from the hash marks where it it does kind of run um, right at the end of the road in the bottom left-hand corner. So you can see you've got this high concentration of anti-tank cubes, uh, which kind of envelops the beach exit. And you've also got this secondary spur, which runs at right angles to the beach. So the idea of this was that it would limit vehicles and try and stop them from uh, reaching the beach exit. And it's also worth noting that there's two, there's no, three rows of anti-tank cubes. Uh, generally, you tend to get double rows, but it's very, very rare that you see three rows of anti-tank cubes in a single area. Uh, the pillboxes um, to the... Left and right of the anti-tank cubes are uh, eared pillboxes. So these have been set up to kind of cover the um, obstacle itself. Again, this idea that something's not an obstacle unless it's covered without, without covered, um, you know, covered by um, heavy fire. Um, and they've also got a number of kind of concentration of infantry slit trenches as well. So these, given, going by the size of them, I'd like to guess them for probably about 10 men each, which would be a platoon in strength. But they're concentrated around the road itself. So if the Germans did breach the um, anti-tank cubes and they tried exiting the beach, they'd come under fire from infantry and trenches. Um, the kind of hillside area just to the right of the slit trench, which looks a bit like... Uh, it's got three prongs to it. I don't know what it looks like. Um, that area to the right of that was actually a minefield as well. So any sneaky enemy trying to sneak up the side of the cliffs would be blown to pieces by mines. So next we've got the clifftop defences here. Um, so you've got a massive concentration of barbed wire in this area. But also on the beach you've got another double row of anti-tank cubes <laughs> put at the bottom of a, an impassable cliff. It doesn't make any sense because uh, there's no way you could get vehicles up that cliff. Uh, but I think it was done to try and stop the vehicles hugging the base of the cliff and seeking cover from anti-tank fire. I think that's, that's the only reason I can think of. You know, I can't think of any other reason for it. Um, again, this is flanked by a number of, um, of these eared pillboxes with the Vickers machine guns. You've also, again, got a number of spurs running at right angles to the beach. So on the cliff tops is where you find your most concentrated defences. So up here we've got a large number of uh, slit trenches and weapon slits. Um, and these, you know, the face of the cliff is itself covered in barbed wire as well. Um, if you notice the barbed wire, which is just um, further south, This covers the rear of the uh, slit trenches and actually kind of goes round the pillbox in that area as well. The idea behind this is that you want to keep any attacking infantry at a distance so they can't throw grenades um, or anything else into the slit trenches themselves. But it also protects the rear of the defences if anyone kind of sneaks behind and tries attacking that way. Um, You'll see the big kind of green right angle uh, just there is the a trench that was um, a modified field boundary, and that no longer exists. Uh, Speaton itself was completely covered in barbed wire. Um, You've got a single pillbox on your left, which itself is covered in barbed wire, and a kind of strong point just to the north as well, kind of defending the um, northern approach to the village, and also the southern approaches as well. Um, The centre of Speaton was actually home to the kind of local infantry billet as well. So there are a number of Nissan huts in there where the soldiers would have, you know, kind of <laughs> slept and eaten and all that. So it was quite a, quite a major objective. But this is all stuff that's mainly stuff that's been taken from the aerial photographs apart from the locations of the pillboxes themselves. Um, so if I really had the time to, I'd, I'd be able to point out a lot more stuff, but I don't think you'd be too interested anyway. Moving on to that. So we've got a good idea of... Um, the locations, that, oh, sorry, I'll just quickly knit back, I didn't point one thing out notice the spacing of the individual dots and the pillboxes, they they're all quite uniform and they're spaced at what appears to be even intervals this wasn't coincidence this was done on purpose You know, the, um, it just kind of goes to show you the amount of planning that went into placing these defences accurately, so each um, essentially what allows each defensive position to do is cover another defensive position in the area and it's It just goes to show you that these things weren't placed randomly throughout the landscape. So, onto fields of fire and shooting and stuff. Fields of fire and how uh, pillboxes would have been able to apply their fire is something that's more often than not completely overlooked, but it helps considerably explain why the defences were placed as they were. So, um, each pillbox could have accommodated a number of different weapons, you know, each capable of covering a considerable area with concentrated withering fire. Um, And plotting fields of fire goes some way to explain how and why the pillbox is replaced within the landscape. Um, So I started investigating how machine guns worked and, you know, how guns are generally used in defence. So I did this by reading a ton of original training manuals on the subject and it's it's not very interesting reading because some of the manuals themselves are really quite boring to read. Um, but it just goes to show you that the army themselves had done a lot of research before the war to make sure that they could employ the weapons efficiently and economically as well, so they weren't just, you know, chucking them around the landscape and hoping things got hit. So here we have the fields of fire plotted for the forward line of eared pillboxes. So uh, the blue indicates the Vickers machine gun's field of fire from the pillbox. Um, you can quite clearly see that the um, the uh, fields of fire are set up to fire along the length of the beach. So this is called Enfilade Fire, and it's a known military tactic. It's a common one. Uh, the idea is that you cover the longest arc of a target with fire, um, so that you cover in a bigger area, essentially. Um, the ears pillbox itself, the uh, loopholes point to the sides and not to the front for this specific reason. It's something that people generally point out is, you know, oh, why do the loopholes, why, why could they shoot to the side and not to the front, and you show them this, and it's like, oh, right, OK, that makes sense. Um, so essentially Reeton Beach itself would have been turning into, you know, just a hail of fire. Anyone landing there would have been completely ripped to shreds or potentially ripped to shreds as well. Um, it's also worth noting as well. So these um, fields of fire extend out to 600 yards. So I've I've measured all this stuff in, I've um, taken, made made sure the angles of uh, arcs of fire are correct uh, for the pillboxes using the 3D models I've created. but it's also at 600 yards, the cone of fire, which is the um, kind of the arc of fire in which bullets travel through the air. So, when generally when you fire a machine gun, every single bullet doesn't travel in the same space. It covers a cone in the air. Um, but this cone of fire travels It is generally no higher than five, five feet, five six feet above the ground. So anyone running up the beach would be caught with uh, a number of bullets. Um, the ammunition they used as well the 0.303 bullets if you get hit by even a single one of those it's going to kill you you know if it hits you in the head you're dead if it hits you in your torso you're dead if it hits you in your arms or legs you're going to lose a leg or an arm you know you don't absorb the bullets and keep on going like rambo or something like that It, it just doesn't happen you know if you get hit you know about it um you can also see that a number of these fields of fire overlap so this is uh you know again another strategy it's uh, called interlocking fields of fire so if you're on the beach you're not just going to get hit from one direction you're going to get hit from several including the clifftop defences as well Um, and you'll also note that these fields of fire um, cover the fronts of the adjacent pillboxes as well so each of these pillboxes has been placed to not only cover the beach but also be able to provide mutual fire support to the nearby pillboxes as well it's extremely clever and it's you know, it's something that was done first in the First World War and it ties in exactly with that. Um, it just goes to show you again that there was a lot of planning going to this and there was a lot of experimentation, but, you know, they knew what they were doing at the time and they were doing things as best they could. And, you know, like I say, it's another kind of dimension you can add to uh, remaining Second World War sites. I'm just going to pick out as well. Um, so this is, these are the arcs of fire from a single lozenge pillbox. Uh, red indicates uh, the arcs of fire for a Bren gun and green indicates the arcs of fire for uh, the short magazine, the Enfield rifle. So you can see that this uh, pillbox is located on top of the cliffs. Uh, from that position, firing to the north, you can see that they can clearly cover the beach but also cover the um, eared pillboxes on the beach front. and they can also cover this relatively flat dead space in front of the position as well which um, would have been passable to infantry. Uh, To the south the arcs of fire again cover the field to the south so if anyone tries sneaking up behind them they're still able to defend themselves and from that pillbox you can also get a decent amount of fire onto the foot kind of the base of uh, Speeton Hills as well so essentially offering fire support to the positions up there as well. Um, The rifle fire was capable of covering the pillbox well the two pillboxes to the left as well so it's this idea of mutual fire support. This uh, pillbox itself is sat on a Quite high piece of ground, but from that position they were able to cover a three hundred and sixty degree arc, also taking into account the other defenses of the area as well and like I say this is something that is more often than not overlooked by people studying and looking at pillboxes uh, and like I say it goes you know some way to showing how the defense would have been effective yes right so that 's uh, enough of some of the boring stuff i 'm going to start drawing some conclusions that i 've uh, been able to work out from. My kind of study of the area. So, uh, as I've already said, one thing that's often overlooked more often not, than not is how the defences interacted with their location and the fact that a lot of planning went into their placement. Um, a lot of people still believe, especially with pillboxes, that they were placed completely randomly throughout the country, which is really not the case. Um, you know, a great deal of planning went into their placements and it really wasn't within the interest of those planning the defences to waste material and time on constructing even, even a single badly placed pillbox. Um, and there's also a knock-on effect, effect as well. If the pillbox is placed badly, it's going to risk the lives of the crew inside, which we just didn't have, you know, the um, manpower to, uh, you know, waste, waste soldiers uh, like that in the event of an invasion. So many, if not all, uh, defences were cited to take advantage of the local topographical features and cover other defences in the vicinity. You know, and this has kind of become apparent through the work that I've done, the work I've done planning the defences too. Even when investigating Second World, World War defences, it's very important to consider why the disc- uh, defences were constructed in the area. So you shouldn't look at the defences in isolation. You need to look at the wider defensive landscape and see how things tie into that as well. And by doing this, you can try, try to work out why the defences were placed in an area and um, how they sit within the local landscape too. Um, again, this is all things I've, you know, tried to answer through my fieldwork in Filey Bay. So there's a lot more to Second World War defence than you might think, you know, and by concentrating, um, as I've done here, on a relatively small area, rather than focusing on a huge area, you're able to pick out more information for a smaller site and, you know, get. A, better sense of how things worked and how the landscape was used rather than looking at things from a lot further away. So the study as well also highlights uh, the fact that sites need to be recorded before they disappear. The pillbox, the main picture on the left, when I first started surveying the site way back in 2004, that pillbox sat quite happily on the top of the cliff so you could walk all the way around it and within the past two three years it started, uh, well it's decided to move its way down to the beach (laughs) for some reason. Um, It just goes to show you the effects of coastal erosion in the area. Uh, The pillbox on the right, believe it or not, is actually an eared pillbox. Um, And, you know, that was once an eared pillbox and now it's just a pile of crumbling concrete on the foot of the beach. But, you know, um, these things continue to be lost and will continue to be lost. And if you don't record them and interpret them while they're still there, it's going to be extremely difficult to do so in the future. Also, it's uh, very important to consider military strategy, strategy and tactics at the time using original documents. You know, by doing so, you're able to build up um, a picture of how these things were meant to be used by the people using them and how the military thought at the time. You know, it's kind of like a third dimension to the sites. Um, Again, I'm going to stress that Second World War sites did not sit in isolation. You know, even today, a lot of archaeologists who look at pillboxes don't investigate the wider context um, and tend to look at pillboxes as single entities when they were part of a much wider defensive system. You know, and it's kind of... Yeah, it, it just it doesn't make sense to me anymore. Uh, also, it's worth pointing out as well that the use of the landscape in defence can be co- compared to sites such as Stonehenge and the way that the ritual landscape around there has been analysed. You know, uh, There's been a lot of work looking at how the sites of Stonehenge and Avebury sit within the landscape and how the past peoples would have used the landscape in ritual. You can kind of use those same methods to look at Second World War sites as well, You know, seeing how they fit within the landscape and how people thought at the time. I'm just going to point out as well, um, we, t- we actually, well, it's been suggested that we know more about Roman legionary reports than we know about Second World War Defence as well, which were built only 75 years ago. Um, right, I'm just going to finish off just by pointing out some of the further research, which I tend to do when I get time. So my first objective is to use GIS software, um, well, transfer all my data across to that, but use that to investigate fields of fire and view sheds more scientifically, um, I'll eventually get there I'm still learning at the minute but I'm sure I'll work something out um, but this again these methods will help I- interpret other second world war sites throughout the country as well. I also want to extend my survey area further north so considering and taking a look at uh, some of the other defences in Filey Bay to the north so we've got on the left there that's a <laughs> um, a, an emergency beach light emplacement. Uh, so the idea behind these was that if an enemy attacked at night you'd shine a light on them and see where they are uh, but it also works the other way so if you shine a light on someone generally they'll shoot back at you um, these are extremely rare there's only two that I know of in Yorkshire um, but this one the original embrasure has been kind of blocked up on the right hand side because they're, see, they're really really were a stupid idea and were generally converted to machine-gun pillboxes mm-hmm. And again, on the right-hand side there, we've got further examples of uh, Second World War graffiti as well, which tie in with the example that I've recorded too. And I want to investigate the rest of the area using the aerial photographs, picking out the defences which have long since been lost. Filey itself, um, there's nothing going on in Filey. Uh, there seems to be kind of like a massive lack of defences in Filey itself. And I want to, um, this is probably down to um, you know, uh, people not investigating the area. File fire itself, but I want to yeah, investigate that further using aerial photographs and try and work out what was going on there. Uh, the emergency coastal battery, that's all that's left of it. I want to give that a bit more attention as well. Uh, so, yeah, do some proper inter- uh, interpretation of that using aerial photographs, and also map the fields of fire for the two 6-inch guns which were there, um, yeah, and work out what it would have been able to do, who manned it. Uh, archive research um, as well. Uh, Q. Down in London has a load of documents relating to uh, the recent defences. And because I'm... Well, this project is self-funded by me. It might prove fairly expensive to do, but I do want to do that in the future. And it'd help, you know, might explain some of the theories that I've come up with as well and give me a better idea of why the defences were placed there. I want to do more of this stuff as well. So um, part of my dissertation, I recreated all the defences at REIT in three dimensions using... Uh, a Google programme. Uh, I want to do a lot more of that with the other defences in the area. But it also comes in useful for experimental archaeology as well. So instead of taking my brain gun off to the coast and risking getting shot, I can just create a 3D model and stick it in a reproduction pillbox as well, which is a lot safer. Uh, so I want to do more of that. Uh, yeah, and that's the end. Um, if you want to keep up with the uh, stuff I do, so you know, occasionally I post pictures of bits of concrete on Twitter. You can follow me at Colonko. I've also got a website which features a lot of concrete and has a number of blogs about starting your own research. So you can check that out at Chris Colonko, which is really originally named, chriscolonco.wordpress.com. And if you want to get in touch and find out more, please feel free to drop me an email, that email address there as well. <laughs> so if you've got any questions, I'll try and answer them. If- yeah. Those uh, two-metre anti-tank blocks that you were talking about where you don't know why they're so tall, oh, is there yes. any evidence that where they're located on the beach, the tide might have been higher so they could have doubled as almost like an anti-landing craft? That's a good idea. Um, I'll just go back to them, actually. Um, from what I can see, um, the kind of two-metre high anti-tank cubes are sat right at the base of the cliff. So the way above the high watermark. Um, let's... I don't know if I'll be able to get to them quick enough. So generally they're actually sited above the high-water mark, so they wouldn't have, um, the water wouldn't have impeded them. But that is uh, something uh, I think my dad mentioned when we originally visited the place. He thought they were anti-landing craft uh, blocks instead. Um, but it's funny with the example where I'm sat on on the right, the ones in front of that are the standard height. And I really can't can't work out why they would stick these taller ones behind, behind them unless it was something to do with, I don't know... The, the thought the Germans might use some kind of ramp or something to get over them, so they place these higher ones at the back. So if they try using a ramp, the tank could kind of topple over on the back or something. Um, well, looking at that picture, it looks like the base is coming up. So yeah, it could also be that with the water and the water table, either raising it up or the erosion taking, mm. so it might have been buried deeper at one point and now. Ah, that's a good. That's a good idea. Yes, um, but I've got. Uh, so you can see the ones on the left-hand side, left-hand picture. I've got a picture of those which is taken in 1950, so it's uh, five years after the end of the war, and the raft that they've been placed on is clearly visible, but then it is, like I say, still a possibility that over the space of, you know, five, ten years, the erosion has taken place and removed the sand, and they, they were originally, yeah, constructed to sit within, you know, within the beach itself. But that actually might be an idea that they were taking into consideration the shif- shifting sands, maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so building these really tall um, anti tank cubes, taking that into consideration, that's an idea. But it's, it's not something I've got <laughs> a concrete uh, theory for, but I, I do like the idea. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I use that one all the time, it's not an original. Um, yeah, how much? <clears throat> It's also that they use this beach because it would have been very accessible for landing craft and ships. How much planning went into looking at other beaches and ignoring other other places? Were other beaches equally vulnerable, also given this intensity of of defence? Oh, that's interesting. Um, Uh, You've just just done this one. (laughs) Well, I've looked into... Anyways, good to see you again, Ken. It's been a while. (laughs) Um, Yeah, you do... The other beaches that I've looked at... um, not just in Yorkshire, but in Norfolk as well. Uh, There tends to be... I think what they're taking into consideration um, is the height of the cliffs behind. So you do tend to find more vulnerable stretches, do do tend to get a more liberal dose of concrete and defences. And local geography to provide a a natural defence as well. I think so, yes. Um, Because to the north you've got Caton Bay, which is a small inlet, but it's backed by um, really, really steep stone cliffs. Um, and there you don't get any anti-tank defences whatsoever. Um, but it, it just seems strange to me that at Reeton, the one place where they've put one of the highest concentration of anti-tank cubes in Yorkshire, is at the base of a sheer cliff, which there's no chance of getting any tanks or vehicles up at all. But they, did, they certainly did take into account um, local topography, um, you know, local the lo- local co- coastal area. Because uh, the general way that the defences were planned is um, some... Like major in the Royal Engineers got a big map out and had a look at that, picks out the areas which he thought was vulnerable. That rolled down to sub who would visit the site and you know pick out the individual locations. Oh, <laughs> well, no, no, I assume these couldn't have withstood a massive attack. Oh, just, d- I, by coincidence, I was watching I think on the Nat Geo channel this afternoon about the uh, Hitler's Atlantic War. Oh, yeah. it's built on a scale that we oh, can't yeah. match. Yeah. It was in the space of four hours, of course, you know, whatever it was. And, yeah. And D Day, just they just punched a hole through one bit, ignored all the rest. Well, that was, it was pretty much uh, yeah, using Blitzkrieg to focus on a single area and punch yeah, straight through. that amount of firepower concentrated on something like this? Mm. Not do it. No. 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 Um, but the whole whole reason for the coastal crust was to kind of work out where the Germans were going to land and where they were going to go from there. So it holds them up as much as possible. So, that, you know, you can deploy a force to counter that. Yeah, more than more than you know. Yeah, more than, it was more. Like I say to work out what they were going to do than, you know, to throw them back into the sea and work, you know, hold them there uh, for any longer than was possible. Um, the anti-tank cubes themselves—they um, did some tests in nineteen late nineteen forty, and they worked out that to destroy a single cube of concrete, it'd take twenty-five rounds of two-pounder HE. No, £2 of solid shot, so £2 a round is 37 millimetres, a fairly small round. But if you're a tank trying to destroy a single one of those, 20 rounds is a considerable amount of ammunition that you'd expend in destroying a single one of these blocks as well. So they had taken the aspect of things into, into account, you know, to such a minute level. So it's still holding up the enemy, making them expend
1: yeah. ammunition. Ex-
0: yeah, yeah. Get resources to that point. Precisely, yeah. So lose as many men as they can. Obviously those men who were, you know, on the beaches, lose, use as much ammunition as possible. Um, to try and... Well, essentially, the Germans didn't have to supply themselves by sea. So, you know, you've got the home fleet sailing down from Scapa Flow to intercept that eventually. But if they, you know, if you can make them expend as many resources on the beach as possible, then it's less for them to play within land. How long would it have taken the fleet to get from Scapa Flow to <laughs> About three or four days, I think, something like so that. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. you've got to... You've got to get them at battle stations, you've got to get them formed up and then you've got to get them sailing down here. I think it was... Ships, it's not like modern vessels, you have to get steam up and, well, and diesel power. Yeah, been diesel at the time, yeah. But like i say it's still taken three, four days probably at the most, yeah. I did a modern ferry from Aberdeen to Orkney last year and that took, was it, 12 hours? Yeah, I did um, Aberdeen to Shetland and that took, <laughs> it took 12 hours, yeah. Thank you, Sir Chris. That's all right, no problem.